Let's, uh, let's open our Bibles, Mark chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in verse 35. Now understand, Jesus has been teaching. We've spent the last couple of weeks teaching about kingdom parables. So Jesus, and it's not like they've recorded every word, believe me, but they, they're, you know, as they, as they look back, think back and remember the, they're, they're talking about the key things, obviously, that Jesus uh, taught. It wasn't a manuscript verbatim. So Jesus has been teaching, and now notice what happens here in verse 35. It says, on that day and evening it come, Jesus said to them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. Jesus tells them what they're going to do, where they're going. So they left the crowd, and they took him along since he was already in the boat. Good idea. And notice here this little detail. Other boats are with him. And all of a sudden, this fierce windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But Jesus is in the stern sleeping on the cushion. (laughs) I like that. So they woke him up and they said, teacher, don't you care that we're about to die? So I could just imagine Jesus kind of, you know, rubbing his eyes and, you know, and, and he says he got up, he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, silence, be still. The wind ceased and there was a great calm. And then Jesus said to them, well, why are you so fearful? Why do you still have no faith? And they were terrified. Notice, they were, they were afraid of the storm, and now they're really terrified. And they go, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. This should have probably been in the evening, a fairly uneventful trip, just simply sailing across the Sea of Galilee, and it was about a six to eight mile endeavor where they would have taken turns probably rowing. But it says here that this furious squall came up, and the Greek word literally can mean that it was almost had hurricane effects, just to give you an idea of the intensity. Now, the Sea of Galilee, you'll see a picture of here. Uh, you'll see two pictures. One is an aerial view. You'll see, look how calm and beautiful it is. But notice that it's surrounded by mountains. See, it's about 13 miles in length, eight miles across at its widest point. Now, because of the warmth of the sea, it's 700 feet below sea level. And oftentimes what would happen is, is while it was a beautiful, very calm sea, often, uh, a lot of times the cold air from the mountains around it, some of them were anywhere from 7,000 to 9,000 feet high. So there would be this cold wind and draft that would come down and then it would come down to the waters, which would, uh, there would be warmth coming off the waters and it would cause these severe windstorms and hurricane-like effects. And so the sailors and the people there knew that those things could happen. But what's interesting is, is we understand that a lot of these disciples, these guys were sailors of the sea. These guys are fishermen. They would have worked on this sea oftentimes so they know what's going on. So what's really interesting is all of a sudden, they're in the midst of this storm and they realize we're gonna die. Well, when it scares a, a, a sailor, it's usually the experience that recognize when something is really bad and they are the first to panic and that's really what's taking place here. So we see these waves are crashing over the sides of the boat. The boat's being swamped. It's in danger of going down. And Jesus, he's snoozing. I was uh, flying home on Friday. I went up Thursday and Friday to coach 
work with a, a board in a church up in Washington and coming home, you know, a plane is not exactly the easiest place to sleep, but there was a guy two seats over from me uh, on the aisle seat and he is just snoozing. No, not only snoozing, he is snoring. And I, and I almost wanted to just kind of tap him and push him a little bit because I felt really bad for him. I mean, it was loud. You know, everybody's looking at him. I'm looking at him, and I just wanted to tap. I wonder if Jesus was snoring, you know? The Son of God, uh, the Savior of the world, on the cushion, just snoozing away. But they go, and they, and they wake up. Now, a couple of things about this. this it, you know, you go, how could Jesus sleep during this? Well, some people say, well, but it's just this striking example of, of Jesus' faith, that he trusted so God so much that in the midst of any storm, he could just sleep. Or secondly, it could be that Jesus was so exhausted. Why? Because he'd actually been teaching all day. Now, some years ago, <clears throat> I'd found out and done some research, and they say that when you get up to speak, something like what I do, and I know none of you would believe this because I have a lot of you come up and go, by the way, man, pretty easy job. I'd like to have your job, you know, throw a, <laughs> throw a few thoughts together, come up there on Sunday and kind of, you know, throw it out there a little bit. And, but, but, but the truth is they say that to speak for an hour, 45 minutes to an hour to prepare a talk um, and then to deliver it is like literally working an eight-hour job because of the adrenaline that you used and, the, and, and just the exertion of energy when you do it with any sense of passion. So to understand Jesus has been ministering and teaching these people all day. So he's probably exhausted. He, he does it along the seashore. I mean, he, he doesn't have a sound system like I have. So literally, he gets in the boat. He uses the, the water and the mountain as a backdrop. And you got to know, man, he's got to exert, man. He's got he's to put some energy into this thing to emote. And he does this continual teaching. And so he's sleeping through the storm. And so the guys, they go and they wrestle. And they go, Lord, don't you care if we drown? Isn't it interesting how they interpreted Jesus as sleeping? Don't you care if we drown? They don't even consider that maybe he's the guy with all the faith that just says, you know what, it's no big deal. God's overseeing this. I'm just taking a little snooze. Or maybe the simple fact that really he's just tired. They went right to the default mode of assuming Jesus didn't care. That his inactivity, his silence is a lack of care. How often do we do that? When all of a sudden, we don't really see the presence of God. We don't sense his voice. And all of a sudden, oh, there you go. He's probably out dealing with somebody else's stuff. He's blessing Billy down the road or, you know, being nice to Johnny or Sally. And I'm just waiting in this storm. But Jesus never forgets about any of his people. He's always there. Jesus, he got up, he rebukes the wind. And the same verbiage that Jesus uses is literally the same language that he would oftentimes use when he's rebuking a demon. And so he stands up and he says to the waves, be still, be quiet. Literally, uh, the rendering is be muzzled. So the wind dies down and it's completely calm. I love this. You know what? Because in this, you don't see what we see oftentimes with so much Christianity where, you know, he doesn't stand up there and kind of make a show of it. And he's got the Holy Ghost vibrato, be quiet, see. You know, he just, he just states it. There's no shenanigans. There's no spiritual fluff. He just says it because that's the power of the word 
of God. And can I just tell you something? That's all we have to do. You just got to speak the word. And it's just the power of God that comes. So how did Jesus do this? Well, Mark is showing us that Jesus is really something more than just a man. Remember, his gospel was written probably 35 to 45 years after this event. So he's got some perspective now on who Jesus is and what's taking place. Because see, one minute, their boat's being swamped, and there's this raging storm going on, and the man Jesus is sleeping due to probably exhaustion. And the next minute, the boat is it's steady. It's on calm seas, and they're just sitting there going, whoa, what just happened? I think there's some personal lessons that I've learned and I want you to see from this text that you need to remember in storms because the truth is, loved ones, every one of us goes through storms. And I don't see a storm like, you know, oh man, I got a flat tire today. A big deal, it's a flat tire. I'm talking about those things that are kind of, that can tend toward cataclysmic, that can rock your world in a way. It comes unexpectedly, you didn't think it, you know, you didn't expect it, and boom, there it is. And you got to deal with it. Now note, Jesus, all this takes place and probably nothing is being said because these guys, it says they're terrified. And when you're you're really afraid, you really don't say much, do you? So Jesus breaks the silence by asking these two questions. Why are you so afraid? And if I'm them, I go, Jesus, what kind of of dumb question is that? I'm ready to die. I'm really afraid. And then he says, do you still not have faith? And I go, what's faith got to do with it? We couldn't bail quick enough. You know, I mean, to me, those are kind of silly questions. And the disciples, they're just sitting there probably. They don't answer. They don't say, it's crickets. Why? Because they are terrified. Terrified by the storm. In verse 41, literally when it says they're terrified, uh, it it says the literal way to understand that is they they feared with great fear. I mean, so there's kind of this exponential fear thing going on. I mean, these guys were scared. And it's not something that we often associate with Jesus, is it? Fear. We don't really think about being terrified when we're with Jesus, when we're around Jesus, as we walk with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is our friend. Jesus loves me, this I know. It's all true, but maybe we need to have a little bit more fear and holy kind of fear of Jesus because the truth is he won't always be safe. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite, uh, just a great writer, but one of my favorite things that he says, and he, uh, it's, it's from the, uh, the, witch in the, war, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in which the children are visiting with the beavers in Narnia, and they're learning about Aslan, the great lion, who really is a powerful picture uh, in the allegory of Jesus Christ, who is the Lion of Judah, the, uh, the, the Lion of God. And the children are nervous about meeting this lion. And as only C.S. Lewis can do in his great mind and intellect, Lucy, one of the children, asks... Isn't he safe? And isn't he talks about this lion? And they go, then he, he isn't safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. 
because he's the king. And I think the church, we've had this tendency, and I'm not just saying creeks, I'm saying the church in general, especially in the United States, that we've lost something because we've really domesticated Jesus, haven't we? We've kind of turned him into our, bo- our, our little buddy, our little friend who walks with us. We've given him flowing locks, fair skin, and feathered hair. And kind of this gone to glory look and these nice robes. Well, we forget that he probably had calloused hands, pretty, pretty good set of muscles because he was a carpenter. He worked with his hands. And so we really don't have this, this healthy fear of Jesus. Maybe a little holy terror like all of a sudden these disciples did. Because once they saw his power, and you almost always see this, whenever people see and truly experience the power of God, it's either fear or bow down and worship. So what are some lessons from these questions? Well, I think the first thing I want us to see is, is a, a question is, I can almost see the disciples asking this, whose idea was this? You know what I mean? Whose idea was this? Have you ever gotten a situation where things are going south or they're quickly turning sideways and there's problems and there's a mess all around you? I do this. I go, man, what? whose idea was this? You know, people go, oh, it's yours. I go, okay, well, good. But I ask that. And I wonder if these disciples, as they're bailing for their lives, maybe one of them would have muttered, whose idea was this? You know what the answer is, don't you? Jesus. He said, let's go to the other side. Now hear me, this is important because Jesus has just been teaching them the word, the power of the word, the importance of how they respond to the word, how they receive the word, how they obey the word. They've been hearing this through all these parables and these teachings, probably from early in the morning until it says almost dark. And now Jesus gives them his word for them. Hey, guess what, guys? We're going to go to the other side of the sea. Now, let me give you, uh, there's a tendency to think that when, that we all face the same, that we don't face the same thing. You know, like I said earlier, somebody's got it better. Somebody's always getting blessed. I always get the raw deal. Why? You know, we have a tendency to think that way, that we don't face the same things, the same temptations, the same challenges, the same storms. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that the temptings and the, the temptations and the testings that we face are common to everybody. And I think the reason that Mark notes this little detail in here where he says, other boats. See, what, see we, we forget that there's other boats in this storm. It wasn't just the disciples involved in it, but there were other boats that were experiencing it as well. They weren't just being singled out, oh, tough luck of the draw. There was other boats there. Uh, life really isn't as unfair sometimes as we think it is. I was golfing the other day with somebody and and, and he, just, he just hit an awful shot into the woods. And, you know, and we're playing for a little money. Don't tell anybody I gamble, but uh, I was just playing for a little money. And so I thought, oh, good, he's in the woods, and I'm kind of out in the fairway, and he's in trouble. Stroke penalty. 
next shot, it's really a good shot. I mean, great shot. It, it, was, it was the exact shot that I wanted to hit, which doesn't happen very often, but I hit it just like I wanted to hit it. And all of a sudden, hits in front of the green, and this thing just ricochets about 190 feet in the air and goes over the green. And there's a guy over there who goes, oh, yeah, and it hit this sprinkler head here. And so I'm going from winning a couple of bucks to now I'm getting ready to potentially lose. So this guy hits a great shot out of the woods onto the green. And he ends up, I think, getting a five. And I go into these bushes and end up hitting up for a double bogey six. And I lose. And I'm thinking, God, where's the justice? You know? Now he's just Billy. I'm, a, I'm your servant. And you know what I realized that, you know, I mean, and, and it didn't take all that. It's just an example, obviously, but it's really true. See, we all face the same things. I'll bet there's been a hundred guys that have hit that sprinkler head, just not Billy, me, you know? And sometimes we think like that. See, Proverbs 30, verse 5 says this, that every word of God is tested. New American Standard renders it that way, which is one of the best translations there is. And see, it's important, loved ones, to believe that the Scripture is inspired when you come to passages like this. Otherwise, instead of you allowing the Bible to judge you, you know what you do? You begin to judge it. Well, is this true? Is this really acceptable? Do I like that? doesn't matter. We're not here to judge the Bible. The, the Bible comes to judge us. And, and, and to deal with our issues. Now, that scripture where it says that every word of God is tested, there's really a couple ways that people, that scholars look at that. That every word is tested, boom, and it's found to be true. It's flawless. Some translations say it's pure. There's other scholars that believe that, that every word is tested, that when you get the word, that it's going to be tested through the scrutiny of experience and living it out. And I have to tell you, as I watch people's lives, if I've experienced life, I really find it probably really to be true that the the word of God is true, but it's oftentimes tested in our lives. It's tested through the crucible of storms and experience, and that's when we find out it's true. Because see, these disciples, they had a lot of faith on the dock. Hey, we're safe. Yeah, let's go, Lord. Let's go, Jesus. Let's take a little trip at night. This will be sweet. Nice little calm waters. But as soon as you get out there, then you begin to go, whoa, storms come. What do I really believe? Who do I really trust? And hear me, loved ones. If Jesus gives you a word, it's probably going to get tested, just like with these disciples. And it's possible that the one who calmed the storm was literally the one who allowed it to teach the disciples to believe and to trust in his word that he gave them there that we're going to get to the other side because he had just taught them all day about his word and how to receive it. See, God is always at work, loved ones, for, uh, for his high purposes in your life and mine. Psalm 138.8 says this, that he has promised to perfect that which concerns you. So it's Jesus' idea that really landed them in trouble. So I think there's something here to think about. I I don't really like this theology, and there's a lot of people that really don't share about it today. But following Jesus is not always the easy way, but it will always be the way to growth and trust. See, we love the prosperity message. We love Jesus is going to take care of us, and he always does. 
But see, they, these guys, they followed Jesus. They took Jesus right into the storm. And you need to know, loved ones, that following Jesus might lead you into difficulty. And some of you are sitting there now, you're, oh, that's, is that really how it's supposed to be, preacher? I mean, really, you know, when I, when I was, somebody invited me to church and they said, oh, come to Jesus and everything gets taken care of. Are you kidding me? Listen, my life couldn't be better in some ways, and yet there's things that I've experienced in my life that I go, God, I never thought I'd have to face that. And, and I think there's people sitting here right now feeling the same way, but you believe, oh, Jesus, come to Jesus, and he'll just make you happy, happy, happy. I don't think so. See, he'll lead us into trouble sometimes. He's not a tame lion. And sometimes he'll kind of be with us and guide us into the storms. Think of family. Some of you have had struggles with children. I can tell you about mine. Some of you that have been in the church for a long time know. I, Trina and I weren't able to have children, and we prayed and believed and asked God, just give us children. And then finally we pursued adoption, and that wasn't working for a couple of years. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, Labor Day 1983, I come home from a, a Giants baseball game, and I get a phone call that says, hey, we've got a son for you. You want him? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> you know? I just saw Johnny Bench play. Now you're telling me I got a son. And, and it, was, it was literally like that. So our oldest son was born, and uh, we went and picked him up two weeks later in South Dakota. One of the greatest highlights of my life and Trina's life until he turned 15 and a half. <laughs> and what's interesting, he was the most compliant kid in the whole world. And some of you remember him. But we begin to have struggles at 15 and a half, and what be, was the most glorious time uh, of, of having a son became the worst because he rebelled, and, and this kid that we loved so much. And I'll just be really honest with you. It used to really bother me. It still, and it still has, and I said this to Trina. She would, she'd verify this. Because he gets self-righteous in times like this. Because I used to say to Trina, I said, you know, I can't believe it. I had a really crappy growing up years, really bad. And I never caused my dad one ounce of grief. And I said, now I got to deal with this. And it really bothered me. And then after whining to Trina, I'd always whine to God. God, why? Why would you let this happen to me? And you know what he said one day? He said, because I wanted you to give him what I've given you, which is really redemption, a better life than I could have ever had without Jesus. And Joel got a better life with us than he could have ever had where he was going. It's amazing how that can quickly kind of slap the slack out of your self-righteous thinking. You know what I mean? Because you begin to think, oh, that's right. Hmm. Uh, let me see. Romans 8 says, you adopted me. While I was yet a sinner, you loved me, and you worked through everything with me. And you've heard me say this, and this is the, good, the, 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 the truth. My two boys, who both of them are adopted, have been the greatest theology book that I've ever been able to learn from. 
because more than ever in, in, in whatever rebellion I had to face with our oldest, who we get along great now, we love, and still not back in church, but I, I got to see more than ever how God responds to me and you and how I'm supposed to respond to him and you even in the midst of that. But there were times I really did think, whose idea was this? Trina, was that yours? <laughs> and, then, and, and then I go, oh, yeah, it was Jesus's because he's the one that orchestrated it. You ever had that? At 1992, I get a call to come here, Creekside Church. It's a wonderful church right now. That we, we, we haven't had any really disunity for I, I, probably since 1994. But when I first came, I, we, I had this wonderful group of Class 101 yesterday, and they asked, you know, I, I gave them a little bit of history, and, and it was just a wonderful group of people. And, and, but I, I, I shared a little bit of the history, and people go, wow, this is, and this is a great church to pastor. If I die tomorrow, you'll have a great pastor somewhere. I'll come in here, and you'll, you'll get a really good pastor. But the point is this, is, this hasn't always been smooth sailing. It hasn't always been calm waters here. Matter of fact, after my second year here, I wanted to, I wanted to get out of here as quickly as I could <laughs> and just go back to teaching where everybody kind of liked me. And, 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 and I didn't have to worry about all the, 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 the crap that Christians can do while they're smiling. <laughs> In Jesus' name, But God called us to act me in, so I literally could not get out. And by the time I probably could have, everything had kind of begun to dissipate and diminish. And there for about a five to six month period, I did, I went, what in the world am I doing here? This was stupid. What a bad idea. Oh, whose idea was it? It was Jesus's. And seeing some of those things that I had to learn in the first three, two to three years, have carried us to this place where we made sure that our church, one of our values would be unity, not uniformity, but we would do everything we could to fight for and work for and maintain what the Bible says, the unity of the faith. And God used those early things to establish some formative things foundationally at Creekside Church. And see, I want to tell you, loved ones, sometimes it's, it's hard following Jesus. It's hard remembering, oh, this was his idea for me to go here to do this. And I'm not suggesting that every storm is from Jesus. Most of my trouble is self-made. But following Jesus, if you do it over time, you will realize it is not always the easiest and it will seldom be the safest, but it will always be the best for you. So Jesus asks another question. Where is your faith? I used to think that was odd that Jesus would ask that. Where is your faith? Why are you afraid? Well, it's because I'm about to drown here, Jesus. And we've all felt like that in situations in our life where, man, I'm going under, Lord. Where are you? And what does that all have to do with my boat sinking anyway? Well, the answer is everything because you can trust Jesus in the midst of your storm. And I know there's people here today, you're facing storms. 
So why would Jesus ask about their faith? I think really their faith. I think really because of two reasons. Jesus has said that they were going to the other side. And second, Jesus was in the boat with them. We're going, trust my word, and I'm here with you. So first he says, let's go to the other side. Jesus wants us to trust what he says in this word because it has been tested and it will be tested in your life. Jesus says we're going to the other side. Yes, but the water is swamping. I can feel the waves. I can hear the winds. Yes, but we're going to go to the other side. You know what we do? Or let me say, you know what I oftentimes have done and can even move to it very quickly now? Oh, yes, Jesus, but... Yes, Jesus, um, but. Because Jesus will say something like this, forgive as I have forgiven you. Yes, but he'll just do it again. Oh, given it will be given to you. Well, (laughs) yes, Jesus, but I can't afford it right now. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Yes, Jesus, but people will take advantage of me. Trust me. Yes, Jesus, but man, I'm really afraid. You notice how we do that? And I think that that's why Jesus so clearly gave him his word for the first part of this chapter so they would have that to stand on, rest in, and trust in before they face the storm. That's why we have it. See, in the middle of the storm, their fears quickly overrode their faith, and it often does that for me, and it probably does that for you as well, doesn't it? It's hard not to be afraid when the water is swamping around us and and just filling our boat. It's hard to have faith when a family member suddenly dies, when your business is going under, when the doctor calls and they say, I'm sorry, I've got some bad news. Could I see you tomorrow? All of a sudden, your future is uncertain, and you go, huh, this is the way it's going to play out. Fear is the natural response. Faith is supernatural. It's something beyond our ability of our natural response in that moment, in the midst of the storm. But hear me, loved ones, we need to stop and remember what Jesus said. We're going to get to the other side. And secondly, Jesus was in the boat with them. They weren't in the storm alone. Jesus, the son of the living God, was in their boat. Think about it. Is God going to send his son down here to die for the sins of humanity and see it short-circuited because of a little storm on the Sea of Galilee? Can you imagine the angels? Uh, You know, Father, a little bad news here. We kind of blew it. Jesus went down in a boat. Not going to happen. And it's the same with you and me, loved ones. He's going to get us through. See, Jesus was in their boat, and he's in your boat. And if you invited him into your life, and you were living for him, when you followed Jesus, and he moves into your life, and I mean every area of it, storms will come. I remember when Trina was diagnosed in 2002 with a cancer, and it went back and forth. I've told story a couple of times about how it went back and forth for a few days. I'll get your affairs in order. Oh, I think we got it in time. Who? We're not sure. And there came a point where we had to simply look to God and say, we're going to trust you because the doctors sure aren't trustworthy because every day it's changed. So we had to go through a lot of process with her and her cancer. 
And I remember sharing with her, we were talking one time, one during just a very intimate moment about what was happening in the future, and I shared with her something that uh, a pastor who eventually died of, of leukemia, uh, his wife shared with him and said that the servant of God is indestructible until he's finished with them. And I said, honey, that's what we're going to anchor our soul to. In the midst of this storm, you are not finished until God is finished with you. Well, that was 12 years ago. Now, I know, I know, listen, hear me. I know some of you are sitting here and going, well, good for Trina. We're really glad for her. And I, I mean, I don't mean that like it sounds, but I mean, you're glad for her. But you're sitting there almost thinking, it didn't work for me. The servant of God is indestructible until God is finished with them. I can't give you rhyme, I can't give you reason, I can't give you answer why she's alive today and while some of our other loved ones aren't. I wish I could. But my thoughts are not as high as God's thoughts. My ways are not as high and big and far-reaching as God's are. There are no answers. I'm not going to try and blow smoke at you, spiritual smoke that wouldn't mean anything. But if we can get our arms around the simple truth, loved ones, that Jesus is in our boat, we'll make it. So Jesus calms the storm and it terrifies them. The last question, the one they asked is, who is this? I mean, even the waves obey him. Who is this? And see, that's the question that Mark wants every one of us to answer. Who is this? Every one of us in this room has to answer that for our life. Who is this man? See, the evidence for the disciples is beginning to pile up. Jesus was more than a man. The conclusion they had to finally come to, he was fully man. He was exhausted, sleeping through the storm, but he's fully God because even he gets up and he commands the waves and the wind to still. That's only something God could do. See, sometimes we see Jesus as a superman. That outwardly, you know, he looks like this humble Galilean carpenter, this rabbi, but under his cloak, he's got to have this big C and where he's going to rip off his robes. He does, but it's not S for Superman, it's S for Savior. That's what he came to do. He didn't come just to deliver us out of every little storm, but to go through every storm with us. And we may not like the outcome, but Jesus is there because he's our savior. Not simply out of our storms, but for our soul for eternity. And while some of us go, I don't like that. That's not good enough for here. That's the best, loved ones. Because the worst you experience here is the best that some people experience because they won't see Jesus. So who is this? It's Jesus. He's fully man, fully God. This was the inescapable conclusion they came to after living with Jesus for three years, watching him heal the sick, raise the dead, calm the sea, feed the multitudes, forgive sin. Saw him crucified on the cross, raised on the third day. The inescapable conclusion was that Jesus was fully man, fully God. That's the incarnation. That's what we'll celebrate in three months. Jesus came as God, lived as a man. See, we can then read first, uh, excuse me, just John chapter one, verse three. It says, all things are made through him. 
Genesis 1 says that he is the creator that spoke creation into existence. Colossians 1.16 says that by him all things were created. And so God spoke creation into existence. And that God is the one through every, that, that everything exists through him, by him, because of him. Oh, that explains why the waves obeyed. That explains why he could calm the winds. And so the disciples seeing this, because they would have been aware of the Old Testament scriptures, what does it say? What would they say? Oh, surely this is God among us, because only God has the authority. Still the winds, calm the sea. Psalm 89.9 says this, you, speaking of God, rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You are God. And see, loved ones, I never want you to forget that. This is God. The Jesus we serve is God. And today we're here to worship Jesus, to acknowledge he's our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer, and our savior. His name is Jesus, who brings everything to us through himself. Can he breathe in to the dust? Can he make sense out of us? Life is in 